0: Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 13. Let me read these verses. I encourage you to read along with me, uh, to follow the, the, the events as they unfold, uh, the, the different voices that speak, uh, the things as, they, as they're visualized and as they're seen, uh, preparing yourself uh, for our time in the Word this morning. So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 17. It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a good, good gift to your people. And your son is a glorious gift to your people. Help us to see his glory in your word today. And help our lives, our minds, our hearts our ambitions, our dreams, our reflection upon the year that has passed. Help all of this to anchor itself in Christ. And it is in His name that I pray. Amen. New Year's Eve. We find ourselves at that moment, in that time, where we look back in one sense on all that 2017 held, both good and bad, the heartaches, the pains, the difficulties, but also the joys, the excitements, the things that we look back upon fondly. And then we look ahead to 2018, all that we hope the year to come will hold. I'm a mess up here dropping notes and everything, sorry got a leaky bottle of water that I don't know if you've realized that. But anyway, okay, so 2018, maybe my resolution would be that I can get a bottle of water that won't leak. Um, But 2018, you look ahead to all that you pray will unfold. Perhaps the hurts and the pains and the difficulties of 2017, they influence and they shape the prayers and the resolutions for 2018. 2018. You know, one aspect of looking back, whether it's looking back over a year, whether it's looking back over five years, whether it's looking back over 50 years, one aspect of looking back, of taking that glance in the rearview mirror, is that it can be, in a sense, this uncomfortable sense of, this uncomfortable pain to look back, to look in the rearview mirror and see all that was dreamed, all that was planned. Am I leaking here? Oh, okay. Thank you. Regina's all, all, always got my back. <laughs> to look back, to see all that was planned, all that was dreamed, and, and to look back on it and have this sense of pain, the sense of uneasiness, because you see so much that was left incomplete. So much that's left undone. So much that was birthed in your head or your heart, but never got any further than that so you enter the new year with resolutions and goals for how you want 2018 or the next stage of life to be different and for that that's kind of the 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 case for all of us as as individuals as people as we watch the calendar turn as pages turn as we enter into a new year but but even particularly thinking now specifically for, for those of us who are christians thinking of our, our our plans and our goals for how we would serve Christ, for how we would seek to grow as followers of Christ in our lives. We have these thoughts of things that, that we, we want to grow in a little better than the year before. Perhaps you can look in the past and you see where areas in which you wanted to grow in your Bible reading, Bible memorization, or growing in prayer and discipleship and and, and, and perhaps wanting to pour into the lives of other brothers and sisters in the body or, or, or non-Christians that you're connected with in some uh, form or fashion and, and, and desiring to invest in them. And you had these, you had these plans that, that you wished and you prayed and you even took before the Lord. And yet, perhaps due to your own faults, your own, your own mistakes, your own, your own laziness or your own, your own putting things off, Or just your own busyness in life. Things didn't quite play out over the past year like you hoped. You had these admirable goals, but you look back and you don't see goals that were met, but you see frustrations. You see conversations that you didn't pursue, decisions that you aren't proud of. And as you take stock of things, maybe you find yourself in this place of having this strange sense of regret and embarrassment and missed opportunities. So for the Christian today, and for all who are gathered here, whether in Christ or exploring Christianity and the claims of Christ, what is your hope as we enter into 2018? Do you have hope that that you'll make these resolutions and and you'll make these plans and, and you'll have a little more resolve this year? And things will play out like you planned and like you anticipated? Sure, we make plans and sure we set things out and hope to improve, hope to make adjustments to our lives. But I think our hope for 2018 is not found in resolutions that we can gather, plans that we can make, dreams that we can muster, efforts that we can, that we can pour out and uh, give our energies to more deeply. But I think our hope for 2018 ought to be rooted in, Peter, in, in what we see with Peter, James, and John on this mountain, and their Lord who ministers to them on top of this very high mountain. So this morning we join with these guys in a different kind of looking back, but also in a different kind of looking forward. Not looking back at all their mistakes, not looking back at all their years that were, and not looking forward to simply what the next year holds, but looking uh, beyond ourselves, but looking at the glory of Christ as we look back on Him and looking at the glory of Christ as He consumes us and calls us to Himself and promises to complete all that we would desire in service to Him in His way and in His will and in His timing. So this morning as we see the transfiguration in Matthew 17, we're going to kind of walk through it in three steps. We're going to see this sense of anticipation of the work of Jesus, we're going to see validation of the work of Jesus, and then we're going to see completion of the work of Jesus. Anticipation, validation, and completion. First in verses 1 through 4, read these with me as we go. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. Now, what does it mean to be transfigured? That's kind of an interesting concept, interesting picture here. I'm glad I'm glad uh, we have this illustrated for us what it means. So he's transfigured before them. He goes up with them on the mountain uh, uh, as a man with them, but then somehow his face begins to shine like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So Jesus is standing there in this supernatural glory before Peter, James, and John. And then two giants from the Old Testament appear with him on this mountain. Verse 3, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And then verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, on observing this transfigured Jesus, Moses and Elijah with him, Peter saying, okay, something's happening here. This is good. And so Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now this passage, and in fact this whole text today, is just replete with imagery from the Old Testament. So so you might uh, give yourself opportunity as you're following along to make notes whether on a piece of paper or, or on your phone, whatever. Make notes of there's a few different Scripture references that we're going to see as this passage just, just shines a spotlight on the Old Testament as it anticipates the Christ who would come. And particularly, so as we start, this passage itself um, is, is replete with allusions to, to throughout the Old Testament. Ascending to the top of a mountain was, was, was a picture that was, that was just viscerally compelling to the people of Israel. For Jewish audience, and Matthew's intended audience, was was, uh, was, was largely uh, Jewish. And, and so throughout his gospel, Matthew gives attention or references to the times that Jesus went up on a mountain and taught, or went up on a mountain and, and, and visually uh, illustrated something about himself and his divinity and his nature. And in these accounts, they always show to serve. Every time Jesus goes up on a mountain, whether it be to teach or whether it be to do Miracles or healings, all of these uh, s- serve to show Jesus in a position of authority on the mountain, not unlike God the Father who, if you're familiar with uh, Jewish history, with the history of the people of Israel, they came out of Egypt and from the mountain God gave them the law. Moses went up on the mountain and communed with God and he gave him the law, and it came down from the mountain. And and so so Jesus is putting himself on a level with God in all of this illustration. And Matthew is highlighting this for his audience, saying, See what Jesus is saying about himself. And see what, what God the Father is saying about Christ himself and his nature. You know, just a few references of these. Matthew five through seven, you have the most famous sermon ever preached. What was it? The Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 15, Jesus healed and fed multitudes of people from a mountain. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus taught about the end of the age and all that would come in the end from a mountain. And then at the very very end of the book of Matthew, we have what is known as the Great Commission, right? And Jesus tells uh, His disciples to go to the top of this mountain and He will meet them there. And then they get to the top of this mountain and His final words with them. He commissions them to go and make His name known to the ends of the earth. And what does He, what does he claim about Himself from that mountain as He commissions these disciples after the cross, after being resurrected? He, he claims that He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and He promises to be with them wherever they go. See, this language, this illustration of a mountain, and all of this uh, uh, is just screaming out the authority of Christ. As being God in the flesh. Interacting with and and, and, and ministering to his people from on high. Perhaps one last example that's uniquely tied to what we see here in Matthew 17. You might write this down to go look at it later. In Matthew chapter 4. You might be familiar with this account where Satan takes Jesus up on a high mountain. It literally says up on a high mountain. Just like Matthew 17 verse 1 says. He takes him up on a high mountain, and he showed him what, what uh, the Scripture says, all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. He promises him these things if he will bow to and worship him. And here, and, and Jesus withstands that offer from Satan. And here Jesus takes Peter, James, and John also up a high mountain, and he shows them his true glory, not this false glory that Satan would... Uh, tempt him with earlier in the book jesus is showing his glory uh, uh, not in the mount of temptation uh, in matthew 4 but in the mount of transfiguration in matthew 17 and so jesus is standing here in this transfigured state moses and eliza they they show up on the scene and and they represent more of this old testament imagery this old testament picture that is that is just bursting through the pages anticipating the messiah uh, in 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 the gospels so Moses and Elijah, they show up on the scene. Moses represents the Old Testament law for the people of Israel. And Elijah represents Old Testament prophets for the people of Israel. So what do we mean by that? The law and the prophets. In each of these, they, they, they proclaim or they anticipate the coming of the Lord for his people. And they proclaim and, and, they, and they give direction for the people of God's interaction with and service to God. So the law is the means whereby God would, would, would instruct his people and how they are to live and how they are to conduct himself as his redeemed covenant people. And the prophets are the means whereby uh, Elijah and other prophets, they would cry out in a message of repentance and returning from sin and coming back to the Lord. And through the acts of God, uh, through the prophets, many times they defeated and destroyed the false gods that the people of Israel might be tempted to worship. And so so what's happening here and what we're seeing in, in Matthew 17 is that this is just, Preaching and climaxing with the the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus is the one that the law anticipates. And he's the final and complete and perfect prophet drawing the people of God to himself. And don't take my word for that. Take Jesus' word for it himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew five seventeen, Jesus said, I did not come, uh, or do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but actually to what? To fulfill them. And so what's being revealed, if you're familiar with Moses and Elijah, all this power that surrounded them. Moses, what happens? He, the Lord raised him up, led him before Pharaoh in Egypt. He, he bring, the, the, the Lord uses him in bringing about the plagues. The Lord uses him in, in uh, parting the Red Sea, guiding the people of Israel out of Egypt, then sending the law through Moses, coming down the mountain. All of these things that Moses saw, all of these things that Moses was a part of in his service to the Lord, In all of these things, Jesus is saying, in a sense, Moses' ministry was very much powerful for the people of God, serving the people of God, but was incomplete apart from my coming. And Elijah's the same boat. If you're familiar with Elijah uh, uh, in this encounter with the uh, false 450 false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, go read that account later today. Elijah uh, uh, is going before these false prophets, and, and they're calling and, and they're, they're having this showdown between the God of Elijah and the God of all these false prophets. And, and, and these false prophets, their false gods, of course, do not show up. But the God of Elijah rains down fire upon this sacrifice, and he proves to himself before these people yet again. To be the one true God Elijah you see that unfold in first kings 18 and in this Jesus is saying Elijah in his ministry for all of its power that you saw and for all of its power that you reference back to was incomplete apart from me these two Moses and Elijah and all of the old testament is anticipating me Now, why is Jesus revealing all of this? Why is he giving these guys, Peter, James, and John, this lesson in biblical theology? And why is he taking them up on this mountain to see this sight of him being transfigured before them? I believe that he's doing so because he's preparing them for a ministry and service to him that will be fruitful when it is anchored in the glory of Christ and the glory of Christ alone. See, he's the one through whom the law and the prophets, and in fact, all the work of God since creation, all of this, it points to, it all orbits around Christ the Messiah. And he's saying, you see my glory, and you see my work, and then you are set out to serve me. This is yet another course in the school of preparation for these guys in ministry. In anticipation of their work as apostles, as disciples, as servants of Christ, and ultimately servants of His church, they will need the image of the glorious transfigured Christ as the one who rules and who reigns and is their strength. This mountaintop, mount of transfiguration appearance is going to help sustain them in their service to Christ in the days ahead. Perhaps... There are some here today who are giving thought to entering into some form of, ver- uh, of formal ministry in some form or shape, whether it be pastoral ministry, global missions, whatever the case may be. One way to prayerfully prepare yourself for ministry, whatever it is, pastoral, global missions, anything else, one way to prepare yourself for that is to seek to drink deeply from the wells of the whole counsel of the Scriptures go deeply into the old testament and seeking to learn and to grow in christ and how it anticipates and looks toward christ and see jesus is preparing peter james and john to serve him and as they're preparing as he's preparing them to serve him and and we're going to see in this passage how they're still very much in this infancy stage where they're still getting a lot of things uh, uh, not quite figured out and getting things wrong but as he's preparing them to serve him he doesn't dumb things down but he actually shows them his glory as revealed in the Law and the Prophets. The best way you can prepare yourself for ministry and service to Christ and His church or making His Gospel known is to become relentless in your pursuit of seeing and beholding the glory of Christ. But this kind of thing isn't only for people entering ministry as Christ's people, as Christ's church, as we look into 2018, may may I encourage you to make it a goal to seek to see the majesty of Christ by seeing how the Scriptures uh, all point to Him, both anticipating Him and reflecting upon Him and glorifying Him in all of His work. If I can give you a reading or devotional recommendations for 2018, I'll give you a couple here. I would give you one that I personally use. I've used it for a few years now, and I I just love it. It's called For the Love of God by by a biblical scholar named D.A. Carson. If you were to Google For the Love of God uh, and then uh, the Gospel Coalition, you can find on there, uh, it's free, and you check it out every day. It's just devotional reading through all the pages of Scripture, all pointing to the glory of Christ, this Christ that we see revealed and and, and, uh, majestically on display here. So D.A. Carson, For the Love of God, you can see it on a blog on the Gospel Coalition, updates every day. If you want to learn more, read uh, a a book recommendation, not not so much in a devotional sense, but a book recommendation, uh, uh, just kind of tying storylines of the Bible together and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these. Uh, One book is by Vaughn Roberts, it's called God's Big Picture. God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts, I highly recommend that one as well as perhaps a book for you to put on the list to read in 2018, and growing and seeing this Christ who is Lord over and anticipated by all of Scripture. So that's anticipation. All this Old Testament biblical theology anticipating the coming of this Christ who's now transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Now we get to validation. Validation, beginning in verse 4. So Peter says to Jesus, So Jesus standing transfigured before them, face shining, clothes glimmering, lights are bright, Moses and Elijah are there, so Peter speaks up, and Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Understatement of the year right there. It's it's a good place to be right now. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know? Hey. I'll build you guys this. This will work out well. And then we have one of the few instances in Scripture where somebody makes a statement, a recommendation, that is so off-base that God the Father himself interrupts and says, cut it out, Peter. Okay? Verse 5, don't lose this. While he was still speaking. If you read Luke's account of the transfiguration, I believe it's in Luke 9, if you read Luke's account... Uh, Luke says, Peter, literally he says Peter didn't really know what he was saying. But if you, so, so uh, while he was still speaking, verse 5 here, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father validating the son's ministry here, also telling Peter to pipe down for a moment and telling them, listen to him. Jesus is the one talking here. Now when the disciples heard this, Peter stopped talking, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, as verse 6 says. But Jesus came and touched them and he said, get up. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus look at what God the Father says about Jesus here in these verses in verse 5 this is my son the father speaking from uh, from his his reign and from his rule from from the heavens testifying to the divinity of Jesus whom I love with whom I'm well pleased he's speaking of this 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 love of the father for the son and he's pleased with him he has sent him out in this work of serving as 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 the son of God the son of man before man coming to do the work of God and drawing people to himself. And and he's saying, I am pleased with his work and then concluding it with, listen to him. Stating the authority that the Father has given the Son to teach on behalf of the Godhead. This statement entirely repeats all that the Father said after Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, except for the very last part, listen to him. And in these words, not only is, do we kind of get laughs about maybe Peter being interrupted here, but we actually see God the Father setting the transfiguration, and more importantly, the disciples who witnessed the transfiguration, setting all of these things on the right tracks, on the right direction for understanding what is happening here. The Father is saying, There's, you, you can misunderstand this, You can miss this. Peter, you're starting to do this, clearly. Listen to Christ as he explains it. Now, I don't know why exactly Peter thought to suggest building three structures on the top of this mountain. There's a principle here for us to realize and learn from Peter. Understand that Peter, in a desire to serve Jesus, actually mistook Jesus' nature And his work and missed it badly. He wanted to leave Jesus in this shelter on top of the mountain in the transfigured state. Brothers and sisters, zeal to make much of Jesus cannot compensate for incorrect, woefully inerrant theology. Let me repeat that zeal to make much of Jesus himself cannot compensate or correct woefully incorrect theology. Peter wants to put Jesus in a shelter on top of a mountain. But what happens if he puts Jesus in this shelter on top of a mountain in all of his zeal? Jesus is up on the mountain. There's still some stuff that Jesus has to come down the mountain and accomplish. Peter's unaware of that. But thankfully, the Father interrupts and Jesus is going to explain what all of that is going to be. You see, if you look ahead, verses 9 and 12, Jesus starts to tell them coming down the mountain, verse 9, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And then verse 12, he says, I tell you, Elijah has already come. We'll get to that in just a second. But then he says, they did to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Peter wants to put Jesus in these shelters on top of a mountain, in these tents on top of a mountain. Jesus says, coming down the mountain, the Son of Man still has to suffer and the Son of Man still has to be raised. See, Jesus is giving Peter and James and John and all of us a lesson in his work and who he is. In the glory of the transfigured state, but also in the coming down the mountain in order to suffer and die and to atone for sin. And I think one reason that he's given these guys such a picture here while also telling them about the suffering to come is that he's starting to connect these dots so that when they see him hanging ragged on a cross, naked and bleeding and beaten and and, and literally dying, they will not see just, oh, this man, this man who, who, who was convicted as a criminal. But they will see this man who came down the mountain, who I saw in this transfigured state, face lit up, clothes glistening, Father speaking, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then, then think about that, think about that picture from the transfigured state, and then think about that as he's hanging on the cross. And does that not shape, does that not craft your view, give, give highlight, give point spotlights on this sacrifice at the cross? As to who this man was that died. Who this man was that suffered in your place and in mine. But let's get back to the top of the mountain real quick. To these transfigured Christ and to the words of the Father, I want to ask, I want to pause real quick. If, if, you're, if you're with us this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I would like to ask you to consider a couple of questions based on what we've seen here so far. I want to ask you to, to just give thoughts of these in your own head, uh, uh, reflect on these as we think about this. First of all, what is your perspective towards entering the presence of God? What is your perspective towards entering the presence of God? Do you have some form of belief that you will one day simply come before God and he will maybe weigh out the good and the bad, and as long as the scales uh, come out in your favor, all is set. If there's questions or, or things that need further explanation, you'll offer those and say, well, that day was, you know, it was kind of a hard season. It was a rough day that day. You know, let me explain that lashing out at that person. Let me explain those words I said there. And, and, and ultimately, you'll smooth everything out. Is your perception of when you will come before God some form of negotiation or some form of opportunity where you will explain yourself? I want to caution you if you have that kind of perception, whether, you know, if you're non-Christian or for that matter, if you're a Christian and you're, you're mistaken on this. Every time in Scripture that we see not even God the Father, but a, a representation of God or the voice of God here, every time we see God in His perfect majestic holiness interacting with man you see what happens in verse 6 when the disciples heard this they fell face down to the ground terrified do not be so bold or even so arrogant as to think that you will come before God one day and not fall face down to the ground terrified unable to get a word of self-justification, out. A holy, holy, holy God does not need to negotiate with sinful rebels like us. He is perfect in his holiness, and he is perfect in his justice. Another question I'd like to ask, for whether you're a non-Christian or maybe you're or maybe all of us who are Christians we need to think through this as well as we consider the teachings and the message and the ministry of Jesus does the work of Jesus make sense to you apart from the cross and the resurrection peter's trying to put him in this tents on this mountain but does the work of Jesus make sense to you where you can put him in the tents on the mountain without the cross and the resurrection Maybe you appreciate Jesus' ethical teachings or his radical generosity. These are certainly to be appreciated and to learn from, or to be learned from, but they are incomplete without staring right in the face of the greatest act of love and justice that he could accomplish and in the cross and coming to terms with what that means for you. See, Jesus is saying here, I'm not this new better, the new and better uh, representation of God, so forget all the Old Testament stuff. He's actually saying, I came to fulfill that. But then he's also saying, I'm not here just to give you good ethical teachings. I'm here to take you right to the cross where holy God encounters sinful, rebellious man and to show you my glory there and to draw you to myself and to invite you into uh, the family of God through my sacrifice at the cross. He's saying, my ministry is incomplete if I don't get to the cross because my ministry is one of being the final prophet the one who calls all to repentance and to returning to God through me. So, if you are considering these questions and you're trying to figure out what to make of Jesus, perhaps 2018 would be a good year for you to diligently explore the claims of Christ and the claims of His Word. If you'd like to discuss this further after the service Uh, I or Pete, we would love the opportunity to speak with you and to help point you to maybe resources or anything we can help you to think through such questions as you consider Christ and his claims. Anticipation, validation, completion. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, that is a curious remark, right? The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. They're walking down this mountain, and Jesus instructs these guys not to tell anything they've seen until Jesus, the Son of Man, has been raised from the dead. And we know as we've seen, that he's giving this instruction because he's the fulfillment of Moses' work, he's the fulfillment of Elijah's work, and the full completion of the redeeming, new life-giving work of God that began in the law and began in the prophets will not come until he's crucified, resurrected, ascending to the Father and reigning in his glorious state. And so Jesus, he describes himself in verses 9 and 12 in two ways. Uh, or, or look at how he describes himself in these two verses. He describes himself as the son of man who's been raised from the dead. And the son of man, verse 12, who's going to suffer at their hands. That's interesting, interesting language. What does he mean being son of man? Uh, it, once again, another Old Testament reference here where he's playing on language from, from the prophet, uh, uh, from Daniel. In the book of Daniel, particularly uh, in Daniel 7, but, I, but, but in a number of places throughout the book, where, where Daniel used this language, the son of man, to speak of the divine, redeeming work of God on behalf of his people. So this name, this understanding of himself says, yes, son of man, born of man, fully human. But it has him on this beeline of redeeming work. The son of man who came to seek and to save man. This beeline of the exalted God in the flesh coming to earth to redeem man to himself. Reigning supreme with an intense focus on drawing people to himself through his cross. And that's the language he's using here. And So he's saying, I'm the one Daniel anticipates there, the son of man. And so the disciples say to him in verse 10, asking him questions, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? They're asking him questions that were going on that that the scribes and other religious teachers of the time were talking about. They were anticipating an Elijah who would come and who would restore all things, who would make the people right, who would make them whole, who would bring relational uh, healing to the people of Israel. If you were to go look at Malachi chapter 4, the very last verses of the whole Old Testament, Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5, you would see where, where uh, there's a prophecy. Um, let me read it to you. Where it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So, uh, they're, they're just playing on or, or listening to what scribes are teaching about uh, the prophet Malachi, saying that he'll send a, a, a final Elijah to come bring reconciliation and healing to the people of Israel. So they're saying, where's this Elijah? Why do they say that Elijah must come first? And look at how Jesus responds in verse 11. To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. Boy, that is a confusing answer, okay? Elijah comes, and he will, and he will uh, restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. He comes, but he has already come. What are you talking about here, Jesus? Give these guys a break. They just saw you transfigured on top of a mountain. Now they're walking down after a long day on the mountain, probably tired, probably a little hungry, but also minds blown by the transfigured Christ. And now he's talking about Elijah who came, hasn't come, but will come, and is coming again and hasn't come yet. What is going on here? Here's what's happening. They're looking for one who will restore the people of Israel, but their understanding of this restoration that he's going to do is all mistaken. Jesus is referencing this final Elijah, the final, the last of the Old Testament style prophets. That's fulfilled in John the Baptist. This last of the prophets who had come and called the people to repentance. So through John the Baptist preaching and repentance has come Uh, Through his preaching and through his ministry, repentance has come to those who are truly of the people of Israel. The promised restoration in one sense has taken place amongst all who have repented and come. But this Elijah, he also suffered and died. And he says in verse 12, Elijah has come. They did not recognize him. That's John the Baptist, but they did to him everything they wished. They killed Elijah that they said they were talking about coming. But they were planning on his return, and they were looking forward to it, and they killed him. It says, in the same way, the Son of Man, the Messiah, they say they are anticipating, they say they want to come, he too will suffer at their hands. You see the dangers of getting Christ wrong. They killed the last Elijah, and they killed the Son of Man. Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of this anticipation, this validation, and the completion of Jesus' ministry as they're on this mountain. And so he tells them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised. So he's given them this foretaste, this forewarning, this, 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 this telling them, you're going to go tell people what you've seen, but just wait. You're going to go, just wait. They're going to be sent out testifying to all that Christ has done, they're going to testify that this Jesus who walked down the mountain, the transfigured Christ who then came down the mountain, remembering the mountain, mountain imagery all throughout Matthew. God came down and now he sets a course for them and you will tell people of this redeeming work of God not, the, not until though he has suffered, died, and been resurrected because then his ministry and his work will be complete. And you give them the full picture and you give it to them vividly because you've seen it with your own eyes. So let me ask you, brother or sister, as we prepare to conclude here, let me ask you a couple of questions. Was Jesus' ministry successful? Yes. Yes, Jesus' ministry was successful. But let's think about this as we consider what success looks like. He created, he reigned, he came, he taught, he healed, but then he died and he suffered. And he was put in a tomb. But then he was resurrected and reigning again and promises to return. That's why the completion, the whole story, is so critical to understanding the full ministry of Jesus. But I ask you this question, was Jesus' ministry successful? Because I want to ask you now, in understanding the success of his ministry when we see it in completion... Will your ministry or your service to Jesus, whatever you plan 2018, whatever you plan the rest of your life, however you want to view it, will it be successful? Looking back in the past, incompleteness, things left undone, you might say, I'm not so sure because I don't trust myself. I might blow it. I might leave things undone and incomplete yet again. But I think we have a clue to the success of a person's ministry in the events at the top of this mountain. And that clue is not with Peter, James, or John, but it's with these other two figures who are with Jesus here, Moses and Elijah. If you're familiar with Moses and Elijah, you're familiar with the story of Moses, you're familiar with Elijah, I told these earlier, but think about where it ended for both of these guys. Moses, it ends, he's getting the people right to the cusp of the promised land. But he goes up on this mountain and God tells him what? You will not lead the people in. He would die outside of the promised land that He had led the people to. But Jesus' life of righteousness to the law and giving that righteousness to all who would repent and believe and, and, and trust in Him is the fulfillment of the ministry of Moses and the completion of giving the law to the people. And Elijah. This incredible event in 1 Kings 18, but nobody really talks a whole lot about 1 Kings 19. Next chapter word gets to the higher-ups and the people that are opposing elijah and the people of israel word gets to them about all that elijah has done and they put a bounty on elijah's head and he cowers in fear and complains and even says god why don't you just take me out and for all intents and purposes that's the end of what we see with elijah and his ministry right there first kings 19 begging god to take him out he's done And yet here is Elijah at the top of this mountain with Jesus. His prophetic ministry, shrouded even in his own cowardice and sin, finds its full completion in the perfect prophetic ministry of Jesus himself. Maybe you are preparing to enter into ministry. Maybe you are seeking to grow more and more in in, in service to Christ faithfully in 2018, but also you have this past full of regrets. Children that have maybe walked away from the faith. A spouse that you are having a hard time sharing the Gospel with. Conversations you squandered or didn't pursue. Don't you dare think that your service to Christ can find incompletion or fail because of all that you left incomplete. You're placing too much hope in yourself. The great reality that Jesus is giving to Peter, James, and John as he's preparing them for ministry lies in the completion not of their work, but of his. As he speaks to them after the father spoke, they look up and they do what? They verse 8, they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus outshines them as the hope and the completion of all that Moses and Elijah looked forward to. And then when he tells them not to say anything until he is raised from the dead, he's saying to them this, I'm going to go finish the work and then you start telling. The completion we all hope for is not the completion we bring, but that which Christ brings to completion in his work. This was the hope of Moses and Elijah. This is what Jesus is teaching Peter, James, and John. And this is each of our hopes as followers of Christ who look into 2018 and look into the future. We look back and we see regret and pain, but we look forward. And even as we might be tempted to see through our own lenses uncertainty, we look forward and see Christ and we see his glory above all of these things. And we cry out amidst our Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John failures, All glory be to Christ, the perfecter and the completer of his work within me. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. And we thank you that our hope as servants of yours are rooted not in ourselves, but in this Christ who reigns supreme and who reigns fully, and who completes the work of His very, very, very fearful servants. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.